He will meet you, my brother, in uh, in uh, Bedouin village uh, mosque. There is a mosque. He will meet you in the front there, my brother. My name's Clara, and this is Sandstone. Sandstone is a storytelling podcast that seeks to understand the nuanced worlds of Arabia and Appalachia and the people that call these places home. Congratulations, my fine-feathered friends. You've made it to episode six of Sandstone. It's a blessing and a miracle we've all made it this far. And now that we've finished up the mini-series on Islam and Christianity, we're going to take a hop, skip, and a jump back to the hills of West Virginia. When I first started to learn Arabic, I interacted pretty much exclusively with Arab women, and that was all well and good. But when I started hanging out with Arab men, that didn't go over as well. It wasn't his religion. It was the fact that he was a male of some years older than you. And you did, like, go over and hang out at their their international house of And you were just a high schooler. Baby. (laughs) That is parenting wisely. Your 14-year-old daughter wants to hang out in a house with... I will lock her up. Yes, lock her up. I was 15, thank you very much. I had my permit and everything. And the male in question, his name was Us, or Osama, which didn't really help things. He was from Tunisia, and we became good friends during his study abroad in West Virginia. <laughs> we would hang out and eat peanut M&Ms, go to Cabela's, go ice skating, all exceptionally innocent activities. But my parents weren't convinced. And my developing teenager brain sensed that there was more to it than wholesome parental responsibility. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I first met you and we became friends, my parents were like, mm. <laughs> Yes, I mean, that, that, that's, this happens, of course, with everyone, especially he's new in the area, and we don't know where did he come from, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, being cautious is so important as well. Being cautious is good. But it wasn't just caution that provoked their distrust. Did you have any preconceptions before you met him? Yes. About what an Arab man named Osama was going to be like? Because if you say no, I know you guys are lying. No. Until we get to know him, we didn't really trust him. That's the bottom line. And was there a specific reason for that? Well, culturally... You know, we didn't know if a Muslim might think that a young American girl might be easy. There's a stereotype, which may or may not be true, but I think some of it is rooted in truth, where women have kind of a second-class citizen role and are supposed to be subservient to men. And so when your 14-year-old daughter is hanging out with Arab young men that may have come from those countries and that a lot of what they know about the United States is from the movies and from, you know, the stereotypical young girl that's going to be easy prey. 
So what had informed this stereotype before you got to know the men that you did? From what, hey, maybe some of my stereotypes came from movies and books and hearing news reports and, you know, of course, 9-11 and before that. In the absence of lived experience, movies and headlines become primary sources. And we're vulnerable to this influence even when it seems innocent. Like in the childhood classic, Aladdin. I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam. Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Between Hollywood and headlines, it's difficult to differentiate fantasy from reality. Samir, the Quran preaches... Do not speak to me of the Quran, woman! I don't know, do I? I don't understand these people. All I know is we need to see weapons. The attackers who've also targeted this area outside the main station are described as young men of Arab or North African appearance. And I'd like to say that I was the all-knowing child, immune from my parents' prejudice, but that would be very far from the truth, because I was equally guilty of harboring these stereotypes. Us was great, but he was the exception, not the rule. And even after I had traveled to the Middle East, lived in North Africa, and met countless exceptions, I still held on to a suspicion reserved especially for Arab men. And I'm not proud of this, and it doesn't make me look very good, but the truth isn't always glamorous, and I think it's important to be honest. For starters, I'm suspicious of every man and his intentions. I feel like this is just how girls think. An example, you're dehydrated, you're nearly dead, and a man stranger offers to get you a cup of water and you're like, no, I'm fine, thanks, not even thirsty. So he brings it to you anyway because you're like dying and your girlfriend is like, do not drink that. He put something in it and then you die. This is how we think. But I'm also the product of a systemically prejudiced society. And in the society we say, yes, men are sketchy just as a general rule of thumb. But society also tells us, be extra suspicious of brown men. It's really ugly, but I'll be the first to call myself out. So in this context, I moved to a country full of literal millions of Arab dudes. I had already lived abroad for extended periods of time, but Jordan was different. This was, as a family friend put it, quote, chop your head off territory. Additionally, I have a reputation in my family and for several years have held the title, the most likely to die in a foreign country. But this time I felt that I really might die. I had imagined several scenarios involving kidnapping, being trafficked across international borders, being swept away by an Arabian prince never to return, the latter of which I would have been totally fine with. But I had done very limited research on Jordan, and I knew as much about it as the average anybody. It was a Muslim country in the bad neighborhood called the Middle East. When I first arrived, I would only hang out with men in mixed gender groups, or I wouldn't hang out with them at all. I kept my phone with me at all times and carried mace in my backpack. 
and I did these things because I was scared. But about a month in, my friend invited me to go to Petra, a world wonder in the ancient home of the Nabataeans. We would stay with her Bedouin friends there. Come one day, Yanni, or today, you can stay overnight in the cave. The second day, you can visit a little bit of Petra, then you go back to get the past to Amman. We made the arrangements, and the night before we left, we were playing cards with a group of friends at a coffee shop. These two guys come into the cafe. They're both tall and muscular, cloaked in thick robes and scarves piled on their heads. The friends I was with seemed to know them. They greeted each other and joined us at the table. And maybe it was the leathered skin, the scarves, the charcoal that lined their eyes, but there was something about them that didn't sit well with me. And as the conversation progressed, it clicked. These were the Bedouin friends. These were the guys that would take us to Petra. Now keep in mind that my friend and I are both foreign. She's European and I'm American, 18 and 19 respectively. American girl might be easy. Easy prey. I panicked. It was midnight and we were leaving the next morning at 5 a.m. So I had five hours to somehow get out of this. I ran to the bathroom to strategize. Bathrooms are wonderful things. They provide respite from awkward, terrible social situations, allow you to collect your thoughts, perform breathing exercises, and also find things that are stuck in your teeth. And for me, this works like 90% of the time, but that night, it definitely did not work. My panic levels went through the actual roof, and when I came out of the bathroom, my friend Mohammed was waiting in the hallway. He came to check on me. I don't know how he knew I was so scared. I thought I was playing it cool. Like, yeah, we're gonna stay in a cave with these stranger danger Bedouin men. It's no big deal, I do this all the time. Perhaps it was because I had been intensely staring at the stranger danger men the whole night long. Or maybe because I took an absurdly long time in the bathroom. Regardless, he perceived my extreme discomfort and offered to help he would come with us to Petra and protect us from the scary guys. A proposal which I readily accepted. I was like, yes, please come, please. See, Muhammad was one of the good ones, and I thought if there were more exceptions present, the exceptions might save me from the rule. And he obviously enjoyed this role. Any guy likes to play the knight every once in a while. So he's like, okay, fine, I'll go with you tomorrow, I'll get a bus ticket, and then the lights went off in the hallway. I screamed, and he screamed, and there was no ice cream involved. The next morning, when I got to the bus station, Mohammed wasn't there. It was too late for him to buy a bus ticket, and frankly, I think he was scared too. But I went. I packed mace and a pocket knife, and if anyone tried anything, I would spray them with my poison juice, and then play dead. It was a flawless plan. He will meet you, my brother, in, uh, in uh, Bedouin village uh, mosque. There is a mosque. He will meet you in the front there, my brother. We arrived in the village outside of Petra. Did you arrive to the main entrance or what? Call me at this number. We called the number and met the brother at the mosque. Hello, hello, and a horn. 
عند المسجد. He also looked like a stranger danger. And I was like, all right, here we go. So was I scared out of my mind? Yes. Was I going to let that stop me from enjoying my last moments on earth? Negatory. We left our bags in a tent and went exploring. If you haven't heard of or seen Petra, it's the place where Indiana Jones was filmed and it's crazy cool. We rode up and down the mountains on what most people call donkeys and what they call Bedouin taxis. First thing, you know, I like my taxi. This is Bedouin taxi. Now I'm riding my mule and it's raining. You see, if you ride car, there is no rain. You cannot feel the rain. Surrounded by donkeys and mountains, I decided that ultimately it wouldn't be the worst way to go. <laughs> and although the guys had been hospitable and friendly, I knew that there had to be a catch. And when night neared, we returned to the tent only to find that our bags were gone. There we were, no phones, no identification. And when we were ushered into a pickup truck, destination unknown, I was like, all right, this is it. We parked in the middle of the desert boonies, and another pickup met us there. Cousins and uncles and men piled out. This is where we would camp out. This is where I die. Easy prey, prey, prey. American girl might be easy. We collected firewood built a campfire, and that was when the knives came out. Knives, sharp and shiny. Knives, messy and cruel. Knives to chop the onions, to peel the potatoes, to slice the peppers. We were having a cookout. That night, we devoured a delicious dinner of chicken and taters, roasted over an open fire. We crouched around the campfire and yodeled campfire songs into the night. (laughs) And although it was the middle of the night, Whereabouts unknown and the ratio of Arab men to me strikingly disproportionate. I was safe. The cousin brought us our bags, we camped under the stars, and the next morning we went on our separate ways. Prejudice, for the most part, is a dormant thing. You don't go about your daily life aware of your prejudice, especially if you live a relatively routine existence. But it's in moments like these, moments when you clutch your purse tighter, when you lock your car doors, when you're surprised that he's actually a nice guy. For me, it was that night that I finally saw my prejudice for what it was, an unfounded fear flapping and flailing in the desert wind. I could tell countless similar stories, hitchhiking with random men, 
hanging out with old farmer dudes. And of course, there are always good men and bad men. And there are those who you're like, mm, could go either way. He's either being nice or creepy, and I really can't tell. And that's true anywhere in the world. We're taught to see the world in absolutes. Absolute good, doctors and physical therapists and teachers. Absolute bad, taxi drivers, drug dealers, men who wear turbans. And we seem to be surprised when teachers and physical therapists are guilty of inappropriate behavior. But we're not so surprised when it's someone from a foreign culture or a person of color. Actually, from the latter, we expect it. At least I did. And this mentality has very real consequences. If I expect an Arab man to be a sexual predator, I probably won't want to welcome him into my country. And if I expect an Arab man to be inherently violent, I might be more likely to support a war against him. I realize that these aren't groundbreaking conclusions, but at least in my experience, it's taken me a while to get here. But it doesn't have to be that way. When we fact-check our thoughts and rein in our fears, we make life a whole lot easier for both ourselves and everybody else. We were open to him as long as we got to know him a little bit and trusted him. And you eventually did And we did. Him. <laughs> he was so nice. After getting to know Oos, my parents came around, and I'm pretty sure my mom cried when he went back to Tunisia. I still have the gifts from your family. I mean, it's so touching. I mean, come on. Yeah, those were great days. This project is supported in part by the Honors College at West Virginia University and the Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Fund. The Critical Language Scholarship is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with funding provided by the U.S. government. Thank you for listening. Oh, also, like and subscribe and share would be awesome. Apparently that's what other podcasts do, so... I guess it's important. I don't know. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. <laughs>